with you, please open up to Psalm 5. And uh, Tim, you were asking about summer. Yes, it will be a little bit cooler uh, in in August, but we also know that winter is coming eventually. So so be outside while you can. Uh, winter here is a little bit different than Southern California, where I'm from. And uh, during our our first winter uh, here in the area was the winter of 2017, and uh, that was one of the the worst winters here uh, on record in the last like 125 years in terms of the amount of snowfall and then how long, uh, I think it was like six weeks, uh, that it stayed below freezing, that it never came above 32 degrees. Uh, and I have a picture on my phone of my the, the Weather Channel app when it was uh, it says it feels like negative 17. Uh, so it was quite the quite the winter, a bit of a, a learning curve uh, for me as I, uh, you know, what, what do you do around the house when it's this cold? Uh, and snow accumulated uh, on roofs, uh, very much so. And uh, in our roof, we had several places uh, kind of faced north and never saw that the sun. And what we what we found out is that when when uh, the snow uh, melts, it becomes water, and then it freezes, it becomes ice. And where it never sees the sun, it stays ice. So on those northern slopes of our roof, we began to get what is known by people in the Midwest and other places other than Southern California uh, as something called an ice dam. Uh, where the, the ice melts and freezes and covers uh, your gutters. Uh, and so about late late January, and uh, before another storm hit, I was like, okay, I, I think I need to deal with this ice dam that's building up outside of our garage. We had, uh, the gutter was completely ice and it had melted over and then was starting to drain right outside of our uh, garage door or the side door. So taking out the trash was always an adventure uh, of whether or not you would slip and fall or if you would make it safely to the trash can and back. So uh, this being my first time living in such cold weather, uh, not knowing what to do with uh, this ice buildup, I did what any modern American would do uh, to learn something, which is what? Google or YouTube, right? That, that's that's where we go. Uh, and so YouTube had some some videos on there of, okay, this is what you do to, to get rid of the ice. And up, we have a hot water spigot in our garage. Uh, but we had to defrost the hose, which we had left outside. So it was it was an adventure. Uh, but but needless to say, uh, YouTube and Google have become that, that that first place that we look to to learn something uh, in our modern culture. That's where we go. And, and and YouTube is amazing in terms of the the number of video tutorials that it has. You can go on there and and, and learn about everything from astrophysics to how to mow your lawn. Uh, if, if you need to learn anything, you can go to YouTube. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything on YouTube is true, so I just had to make that, that caveat. But, but this morning, as we come to Psalm 5, we're going we're gonna to get a tutorial without watching a YouTube video. And we're going to get a tutorial on prayer. Uh, Psalm 5 is going to teach us how we, how we ought to pray. Uh, if, if we want to be heard by God, how should we approach him? Uh, and in this tutorial, uh, it's a much-needed tutorial because sometimes we, we come to God and we feel unworthy. How can, how can I come before a holy God? And sometimes our own sin keeps us from approaching God, and other times uh, we don't pray because we don't make time for it. Uh, or we don't know how to pray as we should. We're like, I don't know what to say or how to say it when I do want to speak to God. 
And the Bible has much to say about prayer. And, and in fact, you could say that this entire book that we're looking at this summer, we won't get through all of it because it's 150 Psalms and we're going to get through maybe, maybe eight. Uh, but this entire book in the Bible is in essence prayers of God's people set to music. And it is an excellent way to learn how to pray to God, how to cry out to him in different moments of life. What we've already seen in the last couple of weeks is uh, is David crying out to God in Psalm 3 when he was in physical danger. And last week we looked at David crying out to God when others are slandering him uh, and how he responded to them. We also see uh, in the last couple of weeks, Psalm 3 was, was known as a morning psalm. Uh, psalm 4 was known as an evening psalm because of verses in there. And again, we come uh, to this psalm, and it is again known as a morning psalm because of what's stated in verse 3. It says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. And in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And then Psalm 6 is also going to have uh, a statement about uh, praying in the evening or in, at night. Psalm 6, verse 6, it says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. And so what we what we come to, as we saw, is Psalms 1 and 2 kind of form the, the front page news of the psalm book. They give us the, the highlights and what is most important. Uh, and those themes are going to be echoed throughout uh, the psalm book after that. And then we have Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 6, which immediately impress upon us this need to be praying to God morning and evening. Day and night. This is to be our constant endeavor and what should characterize us as God's people. And as we look at Psalm 5, this morning psalm, we'll see that it's divided up into five sections. Uh, And uh, in these five sections, the odd-numbered sections, 1, 3, and 5, David is going to look exclusively to God. He's going to be speaking to God with his eyes upon God, crying out to him, praying to him. But then in the second and fourth sections, David is going to be looking with one eye still upon the Lord, and then his other eye is going to look at the wicked. And that's this constant pull that we have in this life of we want to interact with God, but then we also interact with uh, sinners upon the earth. There's one uh, pastor who describes it very well. He says, Psalm 5 illustrates with clarity that the polarity and tension which characterize certain dimensions of the life of prayer. On the one side, there is God, and on the other, evil human beings. And the thought of the psalmist alternates between these two poles. He begins by asking God to hear him, but recalls that evil persons have no place in God's presence. So he turns back to God again, expressing his desire to worship and his need of guidance, but then is reminded of the evil human human evils of the tongue. And eventually he concludes in confidence, praying for protection and blessing. Uh, and, and what we're going to see in this psalm is also, this is, a, this is not just a psalm speaking of, of them, of, of other people. What we're going to see is that David also is going to apply these truths that he's echoing to God about the wicked to himself. And he's going to see, wow, I am just as wicked as others around me. And he, it's going to change and transform how he speaks about himself. And, and when David speaks of the wicked in this psalm, he's not, we don't have a particular group that he's speaking about. Like we had in Psalm 3 where it says, hey, David wrote this when he's running away from his son who's trying to kill him. 
That give us a definitive understanding of what David was speaking of here. But in Psalm 5, we don't have that. So when David speaks of the wicked, he's speaking of, of all sinners, including himself and including us. He speaks of the wicked as a group. And so this psalm becomes also a prayer of self-examination rather than just a prayer of judgment upon others. And so if we want to, if we want to be heard by God, if we want to be able to come and approach Him in prayer, what should we do? How should we approach Him? What we're going to see in this psalm are five key principles in this tutorial on prayer that we should keep in mind as we approach God to pray with Him, to converse with Him. And David begins in, in verse one, verses one through three with principle number one, that we are to prepare your heart before we, we pray. Look at me at the title and then verses one through three. It says, to the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So this first principle that we see is that that we must prepare before we pray to God. And this was intended to be uh, a, a psalm, a prayer that was to be later on sung by the people of Israel, possibly whenever somebody would come and bring an offering in the tabernacle or to the temple, when they were coming to worship, this is possibly a song that could have been sung at that time. And look at uh, how David begins the psalm with a threefold request to be heard by God. He says, hey, give give ear, consider, give give attention to the sound of my cry. And notice what he refers to. He has these three requests, but then he, how he describes what he, how he's making his requests. First he says my words, and then he says my my groanings, or literally my my murmurings. And then his cries for help. He says, God, hear those. The idea of even when we can't put coherent words together, even when we are overwhelmed with emotion and we can't even form words, we can just kind of groan outwardly to God and say, Lord, I, I'm in such distress right now. I need you to pray. The Lord knows and hears even our groanings. God, when I can organize my thoughts and speak them coherently, please hear me. But hear me also when the only thing I can do is groan or murmur or cry out for help. That's what David is saying here. And then he's saying, he's addressing this prayer to, he says, my king and my God. Now, who is David? He is the king. So it's interesting that the king is saying he's addressing this prayer to his king and his God. So David understands that there is a king that is greater than himself. He understands that he's a a, a king with a little k. And there is a, a, a king with a capital K in heaven ruling over all things. But also notice that God is his king. There, there's a personal relationship there. That God is personal. He can have a relationship with his subjects. And, and David has a relationship with this same God who has created everything, who's given us life and breath and, and all that we have. We can have a re- personal relationship with him. David says, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. And that 
The idea behind that I pray is not a one-time offering of prayer, but a, a habit, a, a continual uh, action that David is performing on a regular basis. And we see that he he does this habit, this action of prayer in the morning each day. He says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And the idea of preparing a sacrifice is the concept of setting something in order. Uh, and it could mean uh, that, that kind of the idea of literally going and, and preparing the animal and setting the wood on the altar and uh, going through the ritual of uh, the, the sacrifice that he was preparing for. Or it could refer to the words that he was going to offer up to God as well. And I think there's a greater emphasis not upon the physical preparations of his worship, but upon the preparing of his words. Because the same word in the Hebrew is also used for somebody getting ready for a debate. And what do you do before a debate? You set your arguments up. You have written out how you're going to approach this. And that's what David is saying. That's what he does when he approaches the Lord in prayer. And and the natural result of his personal prayer time wasn't just merely that he was offering prayers up to God, but he was offering prayers up and then also waiting for a response. He says, I, I prepare uh, an offering, a sacrifice for you and watch. Lord, hear my voice and then I'm going to wait and see how you are going to respond to what I'm saying. You, you can think of it this way. If we have a, a bow and arrow, which I'm sure some of you hunters here do, you have a bow and arrow and you take it outside and you shoot it up in the air. What are you also going to do if you shoot that arrow up in the air? You're going to look for it. You're going to watch and wait and see where it comes down because you don't want to be underneath it. And that's the idea here, that when we offer up prayers to God, when we shoot our prayers heavenward, we shouldn't just walk away then. And oftentimes we do. But we should shoot our prayers heavenward and then watch with with expectation that God is going to answer those prayers. Say, Lord, I'm going to lift this up to you, and then I want to see how you are going to respond. Charles Spurgeon, a, a great preacher of the 19th century, says two questions are suggested by the last part of this verse. It says, do we not miss very much of the sweetness and the efficacy of prayer by a lack of careful meditation before it and of hopeful expectation after it? We too often rush into the presence of God without forethought or humility. We are live men who present themselves before a king without a petition, And what wonder it is that we often miss the end of prayer. Meaning that we miss out on the the expectation and and looking for the result. And when we're looking for the result of our prayers, we, we, we joyfully expect it. And then when we see it, it gives us further reason to rejoice. And when we don't do that, when we offer up prayers to God and then forget to look for how he answers, which I'm sure I'm not the only person who's ever done that, right? Well, oh, I've been praying for that, but then I, I forget about it. When we do that, we we miss out on how God has provided and how God has responded to the prayers that we have offered to him. So we have to ask, how often do we prepare our thoughts before we come to our heavenly king? And if we were going to go and visit the president, we would figure out what we're going to say, Right? If we were going to go and visit with an earthly ruler, we would make preparations. But how much more should we prepare before we enter into the throne room of God to converse with him, to make our petitions known? We must 
make preparations before we pray. And that, that preparation doesn't mean that we have to then be, be eloquent in our prayer, but it does mean that we need to be thoughtful. That we don't have to, to, to speak with, with loud uh, or big theological words, but we do need to put thought and time into how we will speak to God in prayer. And that is the, the, the first principle that David gives us here, that, that we see that he prepares his heart to worship God. And then he, he moves from speaking directly to God to looking directly at God, and he takes his eye slightly off of God and then also looks at the wicked. And we see this in principle number two in verses four through six, that, that we should know the righteous character of God. Look with me at those verses. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And we have to see that this whole section, it begins with one little word, that word for. So all of this is describing why David is intentionally preparing before he prays. Because man is naturally sinful. And because God is not merely the king, but he is the perfect and holy ruler. He takes no delight in those who practice wickedness. And those who are evil cannot come to dwell with him in his kingdom. And that word for, for dwell is kind of an unusual word. It's the idea of, uh, of a sojourner of a foreigner coming in and and staying in a land that is not his own. So it's not that he's coming and has blood relatives there and they're kind of obligated to care for him. It's somebody coming in and being completely dependent upon somebody else's hospitality. And what the idea is, hey, there is there is no room in God's kingdom for those who are evil. Those who are are who are evil and practicing wickedness cannot look to God to host them in his kingdom, in his land. And those who are boastful cannot stand before him. The idea of of standing before God in judgment, those who, who are boastful, who are characterized by boasting in and of themselves, will not be able to stand before him. And again, this is this is actually an echoing of what we saw in Psalm 1. So, so turn backward to Psalm 1, verse 5. The psalmist writes that, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seat of, sorry, in the, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now that is, uh, the psalmist is just echoing what, uh, was from the front page of the psalm book. These are the most important, uh, concepts that we need to understand. Uh, additionally, Psalm 2, verse 2, that the kings of the earth set themselves, literally they, they stand against, uh, Psalm 2 shows that, the, that the, all of the world is rebelling against God. Uh, the idea of, of standing against or setting themselves against their creator. Uh, and so David in, in Psalm 5 is saying, the boastful shall not stand before God. They won't be able to do it. And then we see some really strong language that David puts forth. Because David says, Speaking of God, he says, you hate all 
evildoers. And that, and that word for hate is the idea of, of being extremely hostile, having enmity. It's the same word uh, that the Old Testament uses when a man uh, divorces his wife. He's expressing a hatred for her and then pursuing a separation from her. And God rightly judges those who do evil. There's a hostility between God and evildoers. And it's not just a one-sided hatred from God towards them. How do evildoers feel about the Lord? They are expressing a hatred and enmity towards him as well. And this strong language continues. It says, God rightly judges those who act in wickedness. He says, you destroy those who speak lies. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. There's a word that we don't typically use, uh, abhor. The idea of treating something as abominable or extremely uh, repulsive, to loathe something. And th- these are these are strong, strong words. But the psalmist's point is that, as one pastor has said, is that God is so incompatible with evil that even the most temporary coexistence is utterly impossible. It's it's think you think about it in this way that God has has no room in His kingdom for the wicked. He puts up a no vacancy sign. You can't be here. You can't even come and spend the night. You can't come and pitch up pitch your tent uh, on the front yard or or anywhere else. You can't be in the presence of God. That is the psalmist's emphasis, and he says this is really strong language. And this this verse kind of destroys or attacks this idea that God, uh, kind of a, a, a mythical saying that's often repeated of God, uh, hates sin but but loves the sinner. But but that seems to be the opposite of what David is saying here. David seems to be saying that God hates sin and those who do sin, that He hates the evil doer and the evil that they do. And it's easy to, to look at this and, again, take it out of its context. We always got to understand the Bible in its context. And, again, I would, I would say look at the flow of this psalm, of, of what David is, is saying here, that he's speaking to himself and to God. And what he's doing is he is reminding himself of God's holiness. He's saying, God, this is your character. This is not what I think. This is not who I want you to be. This is who you are. And as David echoes back to God who he is, he's also bringing it down and applying it to his own heart, to his own life. If this is God, the measuring stick that God measures people with, that he, he doesn't interact with, he doesn't have allow those who are wicked to dwell with him, then that measuring stick applies to the wicked, but also who it applies to David. And it applies to us. And I think that deeply humbles David. And these words don't so much attack the wicked, but they humble David's own soul. And because David realizes that his own efforts can never allow him to stand before a holy God. David realizes the same thing. If the wicked can't do it, what makes David any different? David was a murderer. And long before Bathsheba and Uriah. David himself understood his own sinfulness. And when he's saying the wicked cannot stand before you, David includes himself in that group, in that category. And this should humble us as well and encourage us to cry out to God. Asking him to forgive us, to pardon our sins, to show us grace and mercy. And thinking about God's hostility towards sin. It's not something that we enjoy thinking about. 
not something on a Sunday afternoon you're like, hey, what do I want to think about? But, but it's something that we do need to give attention to because it encourages us to deal with sin quickly, to uproot it quickly out of our hearts and out of our lives. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, he says, how foolish are we if we attempt to entertain two guests so hostile to one another as Christ Jesus and the devil. Rest assured, Christ will not live in the parlor of our hearts if we entertain the devil in the cellar of our thoughts. And this type of prayer, again, it's it's not popular, but it's something that we need to echo. When we come to God, we need to echo back to him who he is and what he has done, how he interacts with uh, sin and how he deals with it. And again, as we do that, we don't, we shouldn't, we don't do it looking at everywhere else. That's the easy thing to do, right? Lord, please smite that sinner over there. No. Lord, when, when, when the first thing that we should think of, the first person that we should apply that measuring stick to of God's righteousness is ourselves and see that we fall short. And that's exactly what David does because look, look at the difference between what he says. He says, hey, God, this is your measuring stick. But then look at how he says he approaches God. In this third section, verses 7 and 8, in this third principle that we see of, uh, that we are to make a, a humble request known to God, look at how David approaches. So after saying the, the boastful and the, the evildoers cannot dwell with God, he says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So we, we can make two observations about how David approaches God. Number one, it's on the basis of grace. And secondly, it's with an attitude of reverence. On the basis of grace, not his own efforts. See, David is sure that he will enter into the presence of God. He, David is sure that he can go and dwell with God. But look, he's not saying the easy thing to say. We all love to compare ourselves, right? We all love to, to, to show, hey, I'm better than this person. And who do we all typically love to compare ourselves to? Hitler or Stalin or somebody just so bad and so wicked. But David doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, God, you deal this way with the wicked, but I'm so much better than them, so I know I'm going to get to go into your presence. No. He says, God, I know that I'm going to get to go into your presence, not because of anything that I've done, but because of the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God. David, again, understands that he should be counted among the wicked, that he is just as they are. David understands that nobody struts into the presence of God. Nobody's going to strut into heaven and say, here I am, God. You got me. No. It's not going to happen. David says, I can come into your presence not because of my own efforts, my own righteousness, but Lord, because you are gracious and merciful. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house and I will bow down toward your holy temple. Again, the idea of bowing down repeatedly. Again, this psalm was probably read when somebody would come to, to bring an offering to God. To, to prepare their hearts to offer a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. 
It would have been sung. And this psalm right here, this is, this is the center of the psalm. This understanding of I only approach God because of his grace, not through my own efforts. This is the very center of this. And it, this psalm gives expression to the, to the worshiper's desire to come into the presence of God. Not on a one-time basis, but on a continual relationship with God. David approaches God on the basis of grace. And then in verse 8, we see that he... He approaches also with an attitude of reverence. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Again, this is the big request of the psalm. He's coming saying, Lord, I need your grace to even be in your presence. And now, Lord, I'm asking you to lead me. Well, why does he need leading? Well, because he understands that he's wicked. He understands that he is counted among the sinners. And David says, lead me in your righteousness. Not, God, just bless whatever I do. I'm going to walk in my steps. I'm going to walk according to my own ways and my own ideas. And then maybe, God, can you just put your stamp of approval on that? He's saying, God, lead me in your righteousness. David understands that there is a righteousness that he needs that doesn't belong to him, but it is God's righteousness. And then he says, make your way straight before me. Help me to walk on that path that you have. Lay that out for me. Mark it off. Help me to walk down that by the power of your spirit. This is a very humble prayer of David. And it's, this is the prayer that we need to offer up to God when we see our own sinfulness. When, when we apply that same measuring stick of how God interacts with the wicked and will judge sin. This is this should be our same response. Crying out to God for mercy, entering into his presence only by his grace. Great illustration of this. You turn over to uh to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Luke chapter 18. Look at a, a parable of Jesus. Sometimes the parables of Jesus are really hard to understand. And other times the the authors tell us exactly why he's giving us a parable. He, he gives us the message and says, hey, this is who Jesus is speaking to and why he is speaking. If you look at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So these people that Jesus is speaking to, they thought they could stand before God in their own efforts. Does that sound familiar? These are the boasters that the psalmist David is writing about. Saying, hey, they won't stand before God. And Jesus is also addressing them. And he tells them this parable. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So what did this this Pharisee do? He, he's playing that game that we all love to play, the comparison game. And who does he choose to compare himself to? 
The worst of the worst, the sinners. The, the tax collector in the Jewish culture was the lowest of the low. There was nobody lower on the level of, of sinfulness than the tax collector. But look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, that, that is the, the same picture that is being painted here, that we come to God, not through our own efforts, not because of our own righteousness, but crying out to God, cry, appealing to him for mercy, entering into his presence because of his loving kindness and his grace, not because we've deserved it, not because of our own merits. And we need to approach God in that, with that same humble prayer as David did, on the basis of grace and with an attitude of reverence. And when we do that, we can take courage that God's, God's mercies outweigh his judgments every single time. Lamentation says that God's mercies are new. How often? How frequently? Every single morning. And every, whenever we come to God asking for grace, will he turn us away? No. He dishes out mercy endlessly. That is what he is able to offer. And, and these verses are really the heart of the psalm. And, and so the psalm kind of builds to this point, and then David's going to retrace his steps from here. Uh, and as he retraces his steps, this next section, section four, principle number four, we're going to again see David take his eye and bring one eye to the wicked as he continues to look and speak to the Lord. So this fourth principle in verses nine and ten, we see that we should understand the nature of rebellion against God. Look at me in these verses. David says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. It's similar to the, the previous section uh, regarding uh, the, the wicked and the, the sinful. This section, again, begins with that word for. Uh, this section uh, informs us of why David needs God to guide him. He needs God to, to guide him, instruct him, to lay out a path before him because men want to deceive him. Men want to uh, to attack him with their words. You look at verse 9, it's all sins of the tongue, sins of the way that we speak to one another, against one another. And again, these verses, this, this description of the wicked is applied to all men. You may say, how do I know that? How do I know that David isn't just decrying some other group of wicked that he has in his own mind? How do I know for sure that, that what David is saying here applies to every single person? Well, because the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 3. Again, if you guys want to flip over there in your Bible, so further than where we were in Luke, after John, after Acts, Romans chapter 3. And, and Paul's building his argument in Romans. Romans is an airtight legal uh, case. 
Romans chapter 1, Paul shows why the Gentiles, anybody who's not Jewish, is condemned before God. Because God has made himself evident in creation. Then in Romans 2, God or Paul makes his case that the Jew who has had the, the word of God is condemned because he knows the law and then doesn't keep it. And then we come to, to Romans chapter 3. And Paul's going to pull all of this together and say, look, Jew, Gentile, everybody is sinful before God. Look with me, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. This is where he's pulling it all together. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so what we see is Paul quotes these verses and he shows us David isn't just talking about some group, a small group of people during David's time that are attacking him. David was writing about all people, including himself. And Paul uses it the same way that we are all sinners before a holy God. Uh, and, and going back to, to Psalm 5, verse, verse 9, he, he describes the, the character of all of us, of how we are prone and tempted to sin with our words. That's a natural tendency. And we saw that last week in Psalm 4, which was about how do we deal with slander when we are being slandered. And then in verse 10, David gives this colorful description and, and this prayer that initially may seem shocking to us. Look back with me. Psalm 5, verse 10. It says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out for they have rebelled against you. And these are themes that we've already seen in the Psalms. Because David is saying, hey, the people who are plotting against you, Lord, just turn that back on their heads. We saw that in Psalm 2 at the beginning. It says uh, that the rulers and the peoples are counseling together. They're plotting. If you look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And David's prayer is just, Lord, they're plotting against you. Just just turn that back upon them. So how should we understand David's prayer in this verse, this prayer for for judgment? first we should know it's not David just being upset, like, hey God, these people have sinned against me, go go judge them. David is concerned because the, the wicked have sinned against who? Not against him, but against God. He's concerned with what they have done, how they have rebelled against their creator. And also David's prayer is right in alignment with what God has already promised to do. Because God has promised to judge the wicked. All those in rebellion against him, God will judge. But this doesn't necessarily, like, and this prayer for God to judge doesn't necessarily mean that we can be hostile towards people. 
doesn't mean that we can pray against people in the same way just because someone sinned against us. No, we're called to, to love and be gracious and kind, long-suffering. But there's also times where where we can appeal to God for justice. It is an okay thing to cry out to God and ask Him to bring judgment and justice to a situation. One pastor says, We may wish prayer could be all courtesy and finesse. And if so, we've no business messing with the Psalms. Prayer must have a hard edge to it because it has to deal with evil. But also these types of Psalms help us to see the seriousness of sin that we can't underestimate. And that's what we typically try and do. We, we like to underestimate the seriousness of sin. So in, in my years of youth ministry, uh, it, was, it was inevitable that this question would always come up. That the students, usually two students who were dating, they would come up and say, so how far can we go physically? In our in our dating relationship, how far is too far? And and I would always tell them, you're asking the wrong question. You are already underestimating the seriousness of sin, because really, what you're saying, how far can I? How close can I get to rebellion before I should turn back? How how close can I get? When when the reality is, no, Jesus doesn't say, see how close you can get to the line without crossing it. Jesus calls us to a direction. Holiness. He doesn't say, see how close you can get and then stop just before you, you go. You go beyond it. No, he calls us to, to a different direction. He doesn't say, see how close you can get to sin. He says, see how close you can get to the Savior. And when we do that, we're always underestimating sin, the seriousness of it, because we're seeing how close we can draw near to it without falling into it. But no, that's not what we are called to do. Calls us, Jesus calls us to a completely different direction. That's what repentance is, turning uh, our direction, our change, our change of mind followed by a change of direction from sin to Christ. And we can't underestimate the seriousness of that. And that's what th- these types of prayers help us to do. It, it, it brings us back into alignment with God's word and God's will of seeing this is, this is the standard that he is calling us to and we fall short. And that should humble us we begin to realize our own inability to bear our guilt before God. David's prayer here, make them bear their guilt, O God. We need to see that we can't do that. Again, it goes back to the grace of God and a worshipful reverence, a fear of the Lord. And this is a, this is a sobering prayer that we see in verse 10, right? But we also mustn't isolate this prayer that David prays in verse 10 and just say, well, look, God just wants to condemn the wicked. This is not the last prayer of David in this psalm. There is still more. Look at how David closes this psalm. This fifth section, the fifth principle is that we are to rejoice in the refuge that Jesus provides. Look, read with me verses 11 and 12. It says, but... Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. See, David's final prayer request is, hey, let let everybody who is taking refuge in you 
rejoice. And, and what does that remind us of? This, this call that everybody who takes refuge in God. Turn with me back over to Psalm 2. As we looked at Psalm 2 several weeks ago, we saw that it lays out all of human history. The rebellion of man, uh, the response of God, uh, how in the future uh, God has given judgment over to his son. But now look at look at the, the, the last three verses in Psalm 2. This is the response. So there's a warning of judgment, but then also the promise of grace if we look to Christ. Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then look, kiss the son, pay homage to the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But then this last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, that was one of the themes that we had to understand at the beginning of the Psalms. That we are all encouraged to live according to God's word and to live in alignment with God's Son, to place our faith and trust in Him rather than in ourselves. And so now in, in Psalm 5, yes, David prays for, for judgment, but then he also says, hey, it's a reminder that everybody, every uh, person who is sinful, every person who is wicked, every person who, who falls into this category of sinning with their, their speech, which again, we've all done that. What can we also do? is rejoice in the refuge that we have in Jesus Christ. That is what we see here. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And Lord, spread your protection over them with the result that those who love your name may exalt in you. All of this works to the praise and the glory of God that as we find refuge in Christ and are forgiven for our sins, cleansed from our sins, we echo back up to God all that he has done for us. That is that is the point here. And that God then surrounds the righteous. And the righteous, again, are not those who just do the right things. The righteous are those who seek refuge in God rather than in themselves. And in verse 12, it says, You bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. And that term for a shield there, it's not like a little round shield, uh, a little tiny one. It's a full body shield. The one that they would use to, uh, to form a, a testudo, you know, just kind of this wall of armor marching forward. That's how God surrounds his people. That's how he surrounds the righteous. Again, not because they're so good, but because they appeal to his grace. In his autobiography, a German theologian, uh, Helmut Thielich, uh, Tells of an, of a, a situation in his childhood when he was about 10 years old. That there was a, a boy in his class that he and his friends began to, to dislike because this, this student was kind of lackadaisical in class, didn't really pay attention, but then when the teacher called upon him, he had all the answers. And it kind of drove, uh, Helmut and his friends crazy. So they, they determined that this, this young man needs a thrashing, and they were the ones that were going to give it to him. Uh, and so they they decided one morning that they were going to to ambush him. And lo and behold, something interesting happened that that morning. The morning when the ambush was set, the young man's father was also walking with the young man, and his father was one of the most respected men 
in the entire town. Uh, and so the gang took notice that when this young man and his father parted in front of the school, how, how the boy's father stroked his son's hair and patted his cheek as they parted. And, and several times, both of them uh, would begin to walk away and then they would turn back and, and wave. And, uh, and you could just see the love and the affection between the father and his son. And Felix said that he and his friends were very touched by this scene and, and they came to a collective conclusion without, without speaking among themselves. They concluded, it says, whoever has, whoever was loved by such a father stood under the protective taboo and could not be molested. They, they were, they were gripped by this awe of the father's love for his son and said, okay, if, if he is loved so greatly by his father, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't mess with that. It's almost like that young man was surrounded by a shield of his father's love. Now, and that is the end result of what we see here in this psalm. And that is ultimately what is offered to everybody. Offered to all of the wicked, all Sinners are called to abandon themselves, not to, to seek their own righteousness, but to acknowledge their sinfulness before God and to place their faith and trust to seek refuge in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the blessing that awaits us. That is the reason that we can rejoice and exalt in God's name when we take refuge in God. And so as we've looked at this tutorial on prayer this morning, we've seen that, that we must prepare to pray rather than just approaching God thoughtlessly. We must make our preparations. We, we must also know the righteous character of God, that he has a righteous standard that he holds all men to. We must make our requests with, with humility, that we can't approach him, but we need to approach him based upon his grace we don't get to strut into the throne room. We approach him according to his grace and also with reverence. We also must understand the seriousness of our sin. We can't underestimate it. We can't be flippant and say, well, God, it's not that big of a deal. And we can rejoice in knowing that refuge can only be found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. When we when we come to the Psalms, we, we, we come to prayers and truths that are not necessarily seen in other portions of Scripture. And, and all of this talk about the, the righteous and the wicked can be can be kind of confusing. And, and the message that we, we see this morning, which we saw in Psalm two and which we will see elsewhere in the Bible, is not go and clean yourself up. It, it's not go, hey, Go clean up your life and then maybe God will accept you. Maybe then you can move yourself from the righteous or from the wicked to the righteous. God never says, go scrub yourself clean and then maybe I will forgive you. God never says that. In the Bible, what we are called to acknowledge is our sinfulness. We are called to acknowledge that we need cleansing and that we can't clean ourselves. Then scripture says, no, that we, we look to Christ. We say, Jesus, I, I see my sinfulness. I, I see my need to be washed and that I can't, 
I can't cleanse myself to the degree that you want me to be cleansed. But you can. And we are called to, to cry out to God because he is gracious, because he is loving kindness personified, appealing to his grace, his mercy. God doesn't say, go clean yourself up. God says, come here and I will clean you up. I'll make you righteous. The Psalms condemn the wicked and speak strongly against him, but they also proclaim the way of hope, the way of salvation, the the refuge that we are all to run to. And then if we do run to Christ, if we do run to him as our refuge, not only are we cleansed, but then he becomes a shield about us, guarding us, protecting us against everything else in life. And may we begin to understand the refuge that we have run to, and if we've not run to that refuge, may we begin to place our faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Holy God, Lord, you are our God, our King, the one who has given us life and breath and everything that we have. Lord, please forgive us for coming to you thoughtlessly at times, for taking for granted just our ability to come into your presence. Lord, help us to to prepare our prayers before coming to you, to set things in order, to prepare our hearts and our minds, not to come thoughtlessly. But Lord, we long to echo back to you who you are and what you have done. And Lord, you are holy. Lord, you cannot dwell with those who are evil and wicked. Lord, and that's that's sobering news for us because we are counted among the wicked. We are those who have rebelled against you, who have gone our own way, just as we read in, in Romans. Lord, we are so tempted and we have such a great tendency to sin with our tongues, to slander others, to blaspheme your name. But Lord, we come to you asking for grace, asking for mercy, crying out to you to lead us, to guide us, to make a path that is straight before us and that you might enable us then to walk down it. Lord, we long to glorify you. We long to experience the the comfort and security that only you can provide. But Lord, may we all look to you. May we all look to your son, Jesus Christ. May we all take refuge in him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your perfect life, your atoning death, your resurrection from the dead. And Lord, now we thank you for the salvation that is offered to all who believe in you. Lord, may we rejoice in that salvation and give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.